This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. All right, welcome back to Docera Digest. I want to encourage you to watch all the episodes of this energy medicine series as it does contain some very significant information that we feel is vital to not only your health, but all of our health. I also want to encourage you to watch the other uh, series of video podcasts relating to limes, mold, parasites, the significance of water, the air we breathe, the strength training, and then even some summer fun is some of the things we discuss here are, or discuss more in detail in some of those previous series as it relates to energy medicine. Also want to let you know about some of our future series that will be on kids' health, men's and women's health, stress and anxiety, as well as brain health, heart health, hormones, emotions, and more. If you have any ideas or topics of something you'd like for us to consider, then call us, email us, let us know, and we'll consider that in the future as well. How about epigenetics? Epigenetics is a great one. Just throw that one in because that's my pet peeve, yeah. Or anyway, yeah. I love epigenetics. We'll, we'll talk about that. All right. Are you going to express it or? I'm going to express it. I'm going to turn it on and I'm de-express it. Or yeah, de-express it. <laughs> so today, today we're continuing our current series. We want to give a brief overview of the many different aspects of the history of energy medicine. So energetic medicine is not a new concept at all. In fact, energy is a concept that's been known and applied as a form of healing as far back as 4000 BC with the ancient Egyptians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Chinese who identified specific pathways of energy flow in the body. And even before that was what we now call Ayurvedic medicine, which was the beginning of recording their forms of healthcare that some now call medicine. In a moment, Dr. Craig is going to go to more detail about traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine. But before he does, I want to state that it clearly seems like there's been some sort of site, there has been some sort of scientific validity right, to recognize energy medicine as a viable option in the healthcare world today. I talked on, on a previous ser- a series about, you know, not being accepted, <clears throat> but we want to bring in the fact that it is. Before we even had medicine, healthcare was the base of all things natural in nature. As people began to study the natural aspect of nature, energy was the most significant component of understanding of all life. So let me remind you some very influential people that revealed the significance of energy before it lost its luster. People like Sir Isaac Newton, 1642 to 1727, who proved the fact that energy does indeed exist. He stated that energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be changed from one form to another. And we've talked about some of these things. We'll continue to talk about them. As we look back in history, we see, we see different terms of energy, such as light, life force, living force. And it was Lord Kelvin in 1824, who lived between 1824 and 1907, and William Rankine between 1820 and 1872 that suggested all the previous terms mentioned in research were actually being referred to simply as energy. Albert Einstein, remember him? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He proved the fact that the body possesses a, a specific energy that he called rest energy. Now, I referenced earlier that that's what we call repair energy. But he stated that this rest energy holds the potential for change or for conversion and transmutation of all living energy inside the body. He also gave us the formula E equals MC squared. Remember that one? And he proposed the link between matter and energy, or as Dr. Luke had talked about in an earlier episode, the food we eat as matter is actually changed to produce the energy that we need for life. So from these few examples, as well as there's many, many more, we could spend hours going over this. We can say that everything is energy or that all life is energy. And in fact, life itself occurs because of energy. So the term energy medicine began to include the concept of life inside each human being 
as well as all living things. It states that there is a bioelectric-based natural intelligence with a magnetic pole directing all living organisms toward health. Now, Dr. Farney mentioned in our previous episode on this that there's a bent toward chaos or toward entropy or toward it not moving in that direction. But if we look at what life force is or energy force in the human body, it's designed to go to a point that we produce life or health or the ability to stay alive. Now, genetically, we'll talk about that only happens to a certain point, and then it's repair from there on. Any deviation, all right, from that innate attraction to the ability to create wellness can or will create some form of dis-ease or chaos. So when this energy field is strong and vibrant, the entire organism remains healthy and balanced. When it's weakened or disturbed by any number of factors, the body becomes increasingly subject to some form of weakness, sickness, and eventually death. It was the Egyptians that produced the medical papyri dating between 1820 BC to 250 AC that revealed the evidence of their methods of medical treatment that were based on the approach to expel the unseen energy that was causing disease. So over the centuries, healers using energy medicine discovered that they were able to positively influence the body's health by working within its own energy field. They began to teach their patients various techniques such as slow eating, measured movements, altered and non-stressful breathing, uh, meditation and or relaxation. And by doing those things, they helped their patients recover from serious illness and turn back on the ability to maintain good health. I believe it was you, Dr. Farney, last time that talked about that in the essence of those laws, how they changed and, and how they could use those laws, even though they didn't know they were laws, but they could use those examples in people's bodies to help them do that. We know that energy fields have been used for healing ever since those of ancient times. However, uh, by the late 1880s, thousands of physicians in the U.S. and Europe were using electricity, <laughs> imagine this, on a daily basis to treat a wide variety of ailments and patients. Wow, that brings new terms in, doesn't it? All this went, and, yeah, all this <laughs> went on while mainstream science was rejecting the aspect of what is referred to as energy vitalism which was based on the previous mentioned aspect that all living matter possesses some sort of energy or force that is separate from the then known laws of nature. In 1910, science was formally established as a basis for medicine and medical schools were changed to represent and teach that only medicine had the ability to change the energy fields or the dysfunctions in the body. All forms of clinical electrotherapy, uh, electrotherapy and therefore all energy treatments then become illegal in the United States. Very few academic scientists dared to even go against the new concept and to do any study on therapeutic potentials of energy fields. One exception was a Yale professor, H.S. Burr, who was convinced that energy fields are truly the basic blueprints of all forms of life, that every physiological process has an electrical counterpart, and that either energy fields causes diseases, which alters energy fields before pathological changes can begin. Now, I found that kind of interesting because we as physicians look for pathology and we're not looking at causation. In functional medicine, we talk about causology. We're trying to find the cause or the root cause before we can actually get to the real issue. Then in the early 1980s, the FDA cautiously began to approve electrical and magnetic devices to stimulate bone repair. This was the start of a new era of electromagnetic medicine later to be termed energy medicine. Research from around the world began to confirm many of Burr's conclusions about the importance of energy fields in physiology and medicine. Burr also confirmed that energetic cycles that matched with circadian rhythms in nature revealed a universal healing power or energy in the human body as well as in nature. And some of the laws we've talked about were that he identified those. Hopefully in this brief overview of the history of energy healing, we can attest to the fact that true healing of an illness has always encompassed more than just the removal of symptoms, but more specifically, the removal of the energy that causes the symptoms. Bad energy. You got to go. You bad. <laughs> it can also be said that looking back at history, that energy is a natural inclusion in life and not something that's out there or strange, nor is it new or new age medicine, yet rather it is found in our very historical healthcare roots. And it is these ancient wisdom roots that we find true healing that is available in energy medicine today. Now, concluding, I'd like to point out that it was the ancient Egyptians who were some of the first to understand the body as a whole. They have long held the accolades as holistic energetic healers based on the truth that they came up with. 
If one part of the body was ill, then the whole was out of harmony. And that, therefore, specific treatment of the whole body is what should be sought after. And with that, I want to turn it over to Dr. Craig so he can give us more specific details of either Chinese medicine or Vedic medicine. So, Dr. Craig? Or both. You, or both. And both. Yeah. I meant and both. I just want to really meant. Exactly. Yeah. So, I think it's interesting that you went through that history and especially that period here, especially in America where there was this energy was outlawed, you know, all those right. type of concepts. And I think sometimes a lot of today people think, well, this is a recent or new age concept of energy medicine. No, this is very, very old and very, very uh, well-founded. So I'm going to just use a couple of examples. You've mentioned both of them. First, I'm going to talk about Ayurvedic medicine. I actually had to listen to the pronunciation of that. So it is actually one of the oldest systems of medicine. One of the things I got to thinking about too is you're talking about Egypt. And I think a lot of the healthcare was just individuals figuring things out. And um, Ayurvedic medicine was kind of one of the first to start putting into a systematic type approach. So it's about 3,000 to 5,000 years old. It's based out of India. And it's also based on the belief that wellness, health and wellness depends on a balance between the body, the mind, and the spirit. So especially as we start getting into mind and spirit, that tends to connect with that energy concept. It's energy. It's easy to see how we see the body as more of the physical and the solid and the mass. And the as you start talking about mind and spirit, you start getting into that energy concept. So they also have the concept of universal interconnectedness. We're not individual units, we are a whole. So not only do they see the human body as a whole, they saw human beings, human uh, people as a whole. They also believed in the body constitution or what they called the prakriti and life forces, which they called dosas. And these are the primary basis of the uh, Ayurvedic medicine. They believed in five elements, space, air, fire, water, and earth. And they believed everything in, is made up of these five elements. And these combined in different combinations to create doses or dose or forces. These forces then flew or flew. Yeah. Flowed, which that's something I was thinking about from our last episode. We didn't really mention that energy is meant to flow and problems occur when energy doesn't flow. So their concept is that energy flows both from above down and from the earth up to the spiritual in through what they call chakras or energy centers. And if any of you have watched um, The Last Airbender, one of my favorite episodes, <laughs> is the guru that talks about the chakras. You have to open up all your chakras. And so, but he used this analogy of these pools of water that are interconnected by these connecting points. And if you get blockages there, energy does not flow and you start to create dysfunction and stagnation. They also connect, you, you mentioned the... Uh, the ocean and the colors and all that, these chakras tie into colors and sound frequencies. Each one is connected to specific colors and specific sounds. And it's also related to certain aspects of our life, like the lowest chakra is related to survival. And then you get up into purpose and identity and pleasure and all these other concepts. So it's, again, they're they seeing the body as a whole, and not again, as not individual in pieces. Ancient oriental medicine or right. ancient Ayurvedic medicine, Ayurvedic medicine. But when we in today's world we hear those things and we're like, ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah. And we're going, no, this is reality of what this earth is all about. And it's exactly. being you, you talk about the water or nobody's an island themselves is the same we've heard. Mm -hmm. Well, an island's not an island. If you take all the water out, it's connected to the ground. Exactly. It's all part of that. So exactly. it's interesting. Yeah, it is. So when it comes to the actual treatment, they tend to combine Ayurvedic medic Ayurvedic medicine combines products from plants animals, metals, and minerals with diet, exercise, and lifestyle changes. So they take this whole person approach. So as we talk more and more about what we do in our own office, this is some of the concepts that this is where they originate from. This is where we learn some of these concepts that have been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And, and to me, if it keeps perpetuating for thousands of years, there's got to be something to it. May add something to that. In one of my research studies I studied on in trying to understand where science came from, right? And Ayurvedic medicine, there you talked about the five elements they talked about. Mm -hmm. And this one, what we would call physician now, uh, back then says, well, if a fire burned a person, is the answer not in the fire? And his concept was 
that if a scorpion has a poison and can kill you, doesn't it have the healing properties within it? So what he did is he took this fire that was in this candle or this lamp, burned an arm and said, the oil that produced the fire should be able to heal the arm. And so he took the oil out of the lamp, wrapped it up, and he actually documented this, right? And that was the first, what we now call public scientific evidence that nature both had 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 harm, caused harm, right. and caused healing. Well, and that ties back into these concepts of thermodynamics. It's right. about balance. If you have a burn, you have a, an oil. It's just they, and that's kind of where these came, the, the concept they had is everything is about balance. Mm -hmm. it, and that, that's the problem, I think. And this even gets into societal issues that we get way out of balance one way or another. They're not balanced. When we find balance, we find harmony. So the other last concept I was going to share when it comes to Ayurvedic medicine, it typically starts with an internal purification process, followed by a special diet, herbal remedies, massage therapy, and then we get into yoga and meditation, which kind of ties into some of the other quantum physics concepts you talk about, mm -hmm. that you go into these meditative states that take you into a whole different realm. So that's kind of the history of the Ayurvedic medicine. Then you also have the traditional Chinese medicine, which is at least 2,000 years old, if not longer, because the earliest written documents we have relating to traditional Chinese medicine are around 200 BC. So by the time they actually started writing it, you know, there's been practice that's been going on for a long, long, long time. So some of their base concepts comes within the concept of balance in yin and yang, masculine, feminine, light, darkness. Again, this same similar concept is here as well. It's about flow and balance. So according to the traditional Chinese medicine, each individual has a life force or energy called qi circulating in the body through energy channels known as meridians. A blockage or stagnation in energy along these channels is responsible for an imbalance in the yin and yang that exists within us and the universe. Again, you get this whole interconnected this pro concept as well. And one of the things I thought of as I was going through this too is, and you guys probably know this is too, one of the first things I noticed with patients is the first thing they start to express is more energy. It's like, I feel, even those that have had intense fatigue, it's like, okay, I'm less fatigued, which makes sense. What we're really starting to do is improve the flow of energy in the body. So uh, let me challenge you on that one second. Okay. Are we improving it or are we transferring it? Okay. Because if, if we reduce disease entities or inflammatory issues that the body's no longer having to fight, the same energy is reposed somewhere else. So here's, is, here's which, my my favorite answer that you always give to an or question. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I, it's just interesting right. how, how we process and think these th things out. If energy doesn't ever change, it's always in, in some form. Mm -hmm. I, I said it doesn't ever change. I mean, it never goes away. It's redirected. And so when we hear our patients, clients say, wow, I feel less fatigue. I think I'm better. I, I think I am. I hope I am. And when they start documenting it, they have less trauma, less inflammation, less disease entities. And therefore, what is designed to give them life and health or go energies, we like to refer right. to it. Now, all of a sudden, they have more of it. Right. And they can go longer. Their stamina is there. Well, I also find it interesting as we're talking about, uh, you know, traditional Chinese medicine, how they have that dual concept of yin and yang. That as you look at those laws of thermodynamics, there's entropy in life. They're in this oh, yin and yang that. balance uh, of those two things. So the other thing I thought about as I was studying traditional Chinese medicine is the old Christmas carol. They have 12 meridians, eight principles, six stages, five elements, four levels and pillars of diagnosis, three stubs, substances and burners, two balanced forces and a partridge and a pear tree. There you go. <laughs> Love it. Right. Except for the last one. <laughs> but it's interesting how you have you know, you have India and you have Asia, which are close, but still they're far enough apart. And yet one of the universal concepts is they both have five elements. Now, mm -hmm. traditional Chinese medicine is a little bit different. They have wood, fire, earth, metal, and water. Um, but it's just, it's really fascinating as you start to study this. And it, what they also have is the same concept of each of these relates to different organs, different muscles, different emotions. They're all interconnected. It's not we have psychology and physiology and structure. It's they're all different forms of the same thing. And I love that 2,000 years later, we're proving them right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, 
for sake of time, I'm not going to go into all of them. But if you, I really encourage you to to uh, do a little research on some of the components of traditional Chinese medicine. I think it's really fascinating these how they break things down into different components, especially these the the, the levels of and pillars of diagnosis, they're all really interesting and fascinating. Well, just contrast cultures. Mm -hmm. Our cultures versus theirs. Who lives longer and healthier? Exactly. Who spends more money on trying to get health? Well, I I will just touch on one here real quick because I I have this right in front of me. The four pillars of diagnosis are looking, listening, touching, and asking. Which the farther we go into what we do, it's really just asking questions. Because God has put a wisdom within us that is already there. We just want to connect with that wisdom to help their body do what it was created to do to begin with. So a couple of other thoughts when it comes to traditional Chinese medicine. The goal of pattern syndrome differentiation is to identify the root cause of a patient's condition or imbalance and to treat the whole person rather than just the symptoms. And they can use a a variety of different modalities from both acupuncture, uh, physical approaches, herbal medicine, dietary and lifestyle recommendations. And again, the goal is to restore balance and promote health within the body. Mm -hmm. So what we are doing is not something new age or recent. This has been long time tested. So with that in mind, I didn't put who's next. Who's after me? Me, Me. Caleb. Yeah, we'll reverse the order. Yeah. So, we like to, you know, pass things off, you know. That's right. Between the failures, so. Exactly. <laughs> ball. Oh, that's right. An energy ball just went. You're going to mesmerize me, aren't you? I'm going to try. Anyways. <laughs> All right. So that kind of leads into a few questions I actually want to ask before I get started on my segment is, have you ever stood on a beach and been mesmerized by the sound and the motion of the waves? Oh. Have you ever boasted, especially during your dating and courtship years, about your animal magnetism? Have you ever wondered where the terms mesmerize, mesmerism, or animal magnetism came from? Well, wonder no longer. I have the answer for you. So those terms are all thanks to the life, name, and work of one Franz Anton Mesmer. (laughs) So he started all this mesmerizing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. He he, he was mesmerized, mesmerizing, you know. Um, Anyways. He was a German physician that lived from 1734 to 1815. And again, he's the one who developed the theory of animal magnetism, which for many people today will be surprised to find out that it is not strictly relegated to mean sexual attraction, as we often use it today. But it was actually referring to that force or energy, that subtle energy we talked about earlier within living beings. So how did he develop his theory? Well, he, again, he was a physician. He was treating people. And in 1774, he, along with several other physicians, started using magnets in their practice to try and bring healing and help people. So again, this in itself was not revolutionary because a lot of other people use magnets. But he developed theories based off of that or, or of one specific experience with one patient that he had. So this patient was Francisca Osterlin. She was a woman who suffered from severe hysteria. And he had the woman drink a a liquid concoction, including iron filings, and then attach magnets to various parts of her body. So as she was going through this treatment, she reported feeling streams of a mysterious fluid flowing inside her body. And after several hours, her symptoms had relieved. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Mesmer referred to the experience of that mysterious fluid flowing as an artificial tide. So, the interesting thing was, though magnet therapy was becoming um, more utilized at that time, he had different beliefs. He he thought he realized that the magnets influenced something, but he didn't think that they were producing the healing on their own, and that there were other factors that were also at play in the healing process. So he theorized based off of a lot of different things he studied and just some of the different things he approached throughout his um, education and through his experiences with patients that a single subtle magnetic fluid was present in the universe and in all living things and that there could be gravitational or magnetic effects on each other. 
And uh, his theories were really based on two ideals that had been in circulation for centuries. Uh, the first, again, was that invisible naturally occurring forces such as gravity that keeps planets in their orbits that can also be responsible for the animation of living bodies such as animals and humans. The other was that the application of magnets could pr uh, prove beneficial in the treatment of disease. And in the case of mesmerism, what was new was the explanation put forth for the relationship between the forces of magnetism and the forces of life, and by extension, disease. So after he developed his thoughts on animal magnetism, he actually stopped using magnets in his treatment and used his own force or subtle energies or you know the animal magnetism within him to try and create change and healing that contact healing patients. or touch yep. healing right yeah just like that and uh, a lot of his treatments would actually bring patients into a kind of trance-like state this is actually what became known as mesmerism so when you're mesmerized it's you're in this kind of trance-like state you're just so in tune with it or so amazed by something that you're just kind of stuck in like a trance thinking about it or you know interacting with that experience so the interesting thing is you know this was different than hypnosis hypnosis actually came out decades later and would build on mesmerism as a basis and then several other psychological aspects or psychological treatments that are still in use today were actually developed using some of this aspect as well getting people in that trance-like state and being able to with mesmerism, it wasn't about being suggestible or being able to exert willpower on someone. It was just kind of about getting to that state where things could flow. Now, we, had, um, we were talking earlier about, you know, energy flow, energy blockages. And that was a big part of his belief in treating patients, too, was that he was redirecting or breaking blockages within the body so that the animal magnetism could flow. And I think this was interesting, especially going into, you know, what Dr. Craig was talking about with the Ayurvedic and traditional Chinese medicine, you know, the concepts of chi meridians, you know, the energy or the chakras, you know, they're blocked in certain areas in the body that energy or animal magnetism could not flow. And even with what we do in our office today, we see similar aspects of that. And that's a big focus that we work on. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And uh, one interesting thing, too, is Mesmer was one of the first in Western medicine to acknowledge that connection. So a lot of things in psychology were built upon his work. And in energy medicine, we still use a lot of similar concepts. And really, it was kind of a derivative of what we see in traditional Chinese medicine as well. So it's kind of like falling in love or seeing a car, or seeing that, an object mm -hmm. or thing you want that you become mesmerized by. Is yeah. that that attractive energy, animalistic energy that, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's just kind of interesting. Well, that's why I like the example when I was talking about the beach earlier. You know, if you right. were sitting on the beach, there's the sound of the waves, there's watching the motion of it, there's the energetic aspects that you can feel, and it can kind of bring you into this subtle, trance-like state sometimes if you're that's just why like, we recommend all Kansans or anybody in the <laughs> mid-United States Get to the beach as often as you can. Yeah. <laughs> and what was that acronym for a beach again? A uh, best escape anyone can have. Yep. B E A C H. Yep. Fine. I'm leaving. Or, or I should say best uh, connection, but that doesn't match up. But best best energy anyone can have. There yeah. you go. I, we'll there change that go. around a little bit. I like that. Constructive energy or destructive? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it would be destructive the bad <laughs> and increasing the potential for good. How about that? Yeah. There we go. Potential for We're going to figure it out one That's time. It. All right, so that is Mesmer. Hopefully you all were mesmerized by that short uh, review on his life, but we're going to turn things over to Dr. Kaisen Thank you. So I'm going to talk about Christian Friedrich Samuel Hahnemann. This is a medical doctor. He's a German physician. He's known as the father of homeopathy. He was born April in 1755. So he was very well known for curating what is known as an alternative medicine referred to as homeopathy. So Dr. Hahnemann is the first scientist uh, that we know of in the modern medical field, being back in the 1800s and 1700s, to come with the idea of making a potent form of medicine by experimenting on healthy people. So he is way ahead and he proved how medicine acts to cure illnesses. Hence, he is also referred to as the father of experimental pharmacology. So most people don't know that. 
So as a medical doctor, he practiced in Germany and France later in his life. So let's talk about what is homeopathy. So Dr. Hahnemann discovered homeopathy. And what it is, is he, he came up with the saying that like cures like. So the claim is a substance responsible for causing diseases in healthy beings has the potential to cure an illness. Kind of like we were talking about earlier with the oil after a fire and similar symptoms. So while preparing homeopathic medicines, the substance goes through a process of dilution to a degree until it is indistinguishable from the dilutant. Generally, there's not even a single molecule of the substance that remains in the solution when it reaches its final stage. So what's left? Yeah. I mean, if the actual real potency of what it is has nothing left in there, what's left over? It's going to be the energy or the frequency, the essence of it in some words, as we call it. And so we can come up with different dilutions at different rates, which have profound impacts on the body. Again, this is where I think he was starting to delve into, as I referred to in an earlier episode, the software of the body kind of patching the software, coming up with patches for it to help the body be able to turn things on and off as needed and to stimulate or to shut down different things with these frequencies versus actually having the real substance in it. So this pr principle of similars uh, was found during reoccurring observation and as he experienced the different medical substances, he would elicit a healing response from a specific syndrome or symptoms of suffering that had been proven to cause when he gave a healthy person an overdose. So he takes somebody who is healthy, give them an overdose of a certain thing, it would start to create these symptoms. And so by understanding what symptoms it causes, he can take that down, dilute it into a nano or a microdose, give it to a sick individual, and it would stimulate the healing aspect of it. So it, it's pretty amazing what he was able to come up with and observe back in the 1800s. So the three key principles of homeopathy that he came up with, of course, was the first one, like cures like, known as the law of similars. The greater the dilution, the greater its potency. Now, this one seems really inverted from what our common understanding is. The more we dilute something down, usually the less of it is. But in this case here, what they found is that the potency goes up and is known as the law of infinitesimal dose. Or quantum physics. There you go. <laughs> and an illness is always specific to the individual. It's not the same thing for everyone based on what's going on with them. So the beauty of the principle of similars is that it not only initiates a healing response, but encourages a respect for the body's wisdom. The body has innate intelligence. It has a wisdom. We're all chiropractors. This is a huge part of the philosophy and the understanding of what we try to do is remove barriers from the body so the innate wisdom can go back and heal itself. Mm -hmm. The old saying is, as good as doctors as we are, we cannot heal anything. The body has to do it. If it can't do it, we need to remove those interferences or to stimulate what it needs help with. So uh, it makes sense to utilize a medicine that helps and mimics this defense rather than inhibit or suppress it. The principle of similars may not be, may be one of nature's laws that when well used can be one of our most sophisticating healing strategies. And that's why we really like it. We find great success with a lot of that. Mm -hmm. uh, energetics, not not your traditional homeopathics, but we do use energetics as well. And we'll go into that more detail. So homeopathic medicine is so widely practiced by physicians in Europe, even though this came about in the 1800s. In Europe right now, to this day, it is no longer considered alternative medicine there because it's so commonly used. Approximately 30% of French doctors, 20% of German doctors, and over 40% of British physicians either use homeopathy or refer to homeopathic doctors. Almost half the Dutch physicians consider homeopathic medicines to be effective. The fact that the British royal family has used and supported homeopathy since the 1830s reflects its longstanding presence in Britain's national health care system. So in Europe, we can see how prevalent this is. This is a huge part of health care there. And yet in America, most people probably aren't aware of what it is or had much experience with it. They're afraid of it even. Yeah, we're afraid of it because of what we've been taught or the way we've been influenced through movies and TVs and mm -hmm. all the commercials we have now. So homeopathic medicine is also once had a major presence in the United States. I mean, we're talking 22 different homeopathic schools in the United States. And then in 1910, as Dr. Ben was talking about earlier, they changed science and excluded this. And so these were 
put down. But in the U.S., we had major universities like Boston University, the University of Michigan, the New York Medical College, Hahnemann University, the University of Minnesota, and even the University of Iowa all taught homeopathy as part of their medical mm-hmm. teachings. So uh, many of uh, America's cultural elite were homeopathy's strongest advocates. So back in the day, Martin Luther King, William James, John D. Rockefeller, Susan B. Anthony, Louisa May Alcott, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Henry David Thoreau, and Harriet Beecher Stowe were amongst many of the big advocates of homeopathy for healing in the United States. In his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Social Transformation of America, of American Medicine, Paul Starr noted, because homeopathy was simultaneously philosophical and experimental, it seemed to many people to be less scientific than the orthodox medicine. So Dr. Hahnemann was memorialized in the United States with his statue and monument being unveiled on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. If I remember correctly, he's the only uh, doctor in U.S. history to have a statue in any national uh, park, for that matter. So this was unveiled in 1900, and the unveiling at the time was attended by President McKinley and his wife, as well as many other notable doctors and other influential uh, colleges and deans at the time. So very well recognized, even to 1900. And then we see that there was a change in how things happened in the United States. So while we look at this as sometimes foo-foo or kind of quackish or, you know, alternative medicine, in other parts of the world, it's considered the norm. It's considered regular. And at one point in the United States, it was, it was highly touted. And there was a major change and shift in the United States where we have seen the medical field and the pharmaceutical companies really kind of take over modern medicine. And so as we talk about all these things here, it seems like something that once was commonly accepted and then was dismissed, we're starting to see it come back out again. I mean, it's been around for thousands of years. It's a revitalization of this understanding, this knowledge, and with today's technology and with the things that we're able to go through and prove out all these theories that these other um, countries and, and cultures had, we're starting to see how these things are coming into it. And so as we look into what we're doing with energy medicine, it's interesting to look back at, at Dr. Hahnemann and see what he was able to accomplish and figure out by really going completely the opposite direction of what one, most people would think would be normal. This, this guy was quite incredible. He, uh, he spoke over 10, 10 to 12 languages, and he spent a lot of his career going through and translating uh, medical texts from other countries into German. And so he spent a lot of time really delving into some of the most um, deep uh, scientific literature at the time from all around the world, translating it and taking that knowledge base in while he was going through and trying to figure out how to get better results for people. That's one thing I liked about him. He was a medical doctor. He was doing the normal thing and he was getting frustrated because he didn't think that it was the right course. And here's a guy who's also known as the father of homeopathy and experimental pharmacology. So this guy was was quite the uh, influential guy. And to have 20 universities at one point in time and to be uh, have a statue memorialized in the United States for what he had done for healthcare in this country up to that point, it's quite amazing. So, you know, Dr. Cash, I, I think of the different people we've had the opportunity to treat from around the world, like in Europe and France, mm-hmm. some of these people. And what I find interesting is when we talk about homeopathy uh, with them, they go to their pharmacy and homeopathy is more prevalent mm-hmm. in some of the pharmaceutical centers than the pharmacy itself. And how much quicker and easier, more acceptable it is in those countries when we treat those people. And they can go find that stuff right there on the shelves and they can get it like OTC, over-the-counter over the type mm-hmm. of, of conditions. And then I'm also uh, mesmerized about the concept of how nothing is something, right? Now, we've jokingly talked about what is it, the quantum and the wasp or whatever that show right. deal is. Quantumania. Quantumania. And when you really watch at that and you get down to that, just because we can't see it means we don't understand it. Therefore, it doesn't exist. But when we look at that nothing becomes something and we get results with it, and we used to jokingly call that, well, it's the shadow of what it is, of its essence. And it's the shadow of the essence that does all the work in homeopathy or homeopathic remedies or tinctures. And yet, we still don't know all that. But 
the body responds and we get great results. Mm -hmm. I think we're also kind of taught to trust what we see. Right. And you get into energy medicine, homeopathy, you can't see it. Right. And what I find interesting in that is that uh, when you trust what you can't see, I think that's called faith. Right. Yeah. Right. It is. You're right. It's knowing that God sees the unseen or what we can't see yet. We understand he's the creator. He made all this happen and it's in existence. Right. And so we trust the principles that he's brought out over thousands of years right. to people to understand how this body works. So. Well, and if you even take it further into the whole aspect of uh, frequencies and waves, we see a very limited amount of frequencies and there are so many more that exist outside of what we can see. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of the concept. You, have you ever seen the wind? Right. No, but you've seen the effects of the wind. Right. That's what we see in homeopathy. Right. Right. Or in our tinctures that we produce and, and we make those, these things happen for. So. Right. Wow. Yep. All right. Cool. Dr. Luke. Yeah, so I'll close this out here with talking about two guys um, in the 19th and 20th century, early 20th century, uh, A.T. Still and D.D. Palmer. Um, yeah, as I said, these two men were in the, they were really prevalent with their work in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, apparently everyone went by their initials back then. So Andrew Taylor Still, the founder of uh, osteopathy as it is today, and he was born in 1828 and died in 1917. And then Daniel David Palmer, the father of chiropractic, was born in 1845 and passed away in 1913. Uh, these two fields are very similar at the time that they were founded, but they had some key philosophical distinctions. So let's start with the history of A.T. Still, who is actually a Kansas man. Uh, his philosophy, and then we'll end with uh, Didi. So first we must understand the, you know, we've kind of already touched on the lay of the land with medicine over the years. Um, in the 19th century, it was not what it is today. Um, despite some fantastic medical advances of the 19th century, like the invention of the stethoscope, anesthesia, uh, and x-ray, uh, some common medical practices that were around back then uh, included phrenology, which if you're not familiar with that is feeling different bumps and uh, on the bones of the skull. And the thought was that these bumps or, or patterns corresponded to different traits, which gave way to a lot of really bad uh, thought systems. And uh, we won't get into all that here. Um, another one that was around was bloodletting was still mainstream at the time, mineral poisoning and widespread drug use with opiates and cocaine, um, which has much changed <laughs> with opiates <laughs> on that. So, um, Well, we don't have frontal lobotomies. Anymore, yeah, that's though. true. That's that is true. So this culture was so diverse and, and there was really no regulation at all uh, that hadn't been established. So it gave rise, you know, as we're talking about to these other fields and in this case, osteopathy and chiropractic. So how do these two men tie into our energy discussion? Well, both A.T. Still and D.D. Palmer utilized joint manipulations or adjustments to the musculoskeletal system. But the two men thought that they did very different things. Um, but first, fun fact, osteopathy means uh, bone pathology and chiropractic means done by hand. So that's kind of interesting how they both tie into the bone and, and hands there. Uh, A.T. Still believed that joint manipulations had a greater effect on blood flow and circulation, thereby restoring health. Whereas D.D. Palmer thought that the joint manipulation helped to restore nerve flow, thereby removing interference and restoring health. So A.T. Still's vision was that osteopathy should be preventative and it should always come first. And very rarely uh, should physicians consider things like drugs and surgery. D.D.'s, D.D. Uh, Palmer's philosophy was similar, but perhaps a little bit more rigid than A.T. Still's. And I think we can see the fruit of that today with how osteopathy has become fully integrated with the medical profession. And you have osteo, osteo can I get that word? Help me, Lord. Osteopathic schools that are, um, you know, producing doctors that go in and work in, in hospitals and alongside medical doctors, whereas chiropractic remains its own standalone profession to this day. So where were we? It's like we moved those blockages we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Pound down the high spot. Yeah, that's right. All those renegades, rebels, and rogues. Yeah. So not getting into whether that's good or bad, it's just noting the evolution over 100 years of both professions. Anyways, back to Dee Dee. Um, he had a very diverse professional background, but was always drawn to the mystical mag – he had uh, experience with working with magnetism. Uh, he's very drawn to the spiritual realm. Um, 
And and with it being a tumultuous medical field at the time, he got to practice, you know, pretty diversely. Um, he believed in what we're called, and, and this term is still used to this day, uh, subluxations, whereas AT still utilized the term, um, what was it, spinal lesions or somatic dysfunctions. Um, and again, Palmer believed that if you correct these subluxations, you would thereby restore the body to a state where it could heal itself and rid itself of all disease and dysfunction. Whereas again, AT was a little bit more open to other things that physicians had at the time. It is worth noting though, that osteopathy did come before chiropractic and that Palmer did take courses under AT still, but he did say in one of his writings, and I quote, chiropractic is osteopathy gone to seed. <laughs> he is a colorful character, BD. <laughs> so without getting into too much of the rest of the history there, it's worth summarizing for the purpose of this energy medicine discussion that these two men believe that the body was able to heal itself, energy. They, they put joint manipulation on the map and popularized it, energy, and they gave way to two great professions. So guys, before we close out, do you have anything else to add to that? Energy. Yeah. yeah. Energy, which to me is the creator of energy. Right. I mean, obviously we have to, you know, it's not just a big bang concept, at least not in my, my mind, but there is intentional aspects of energy mm -hmm. production for health, right? Yeah. As well as for death. And we forget that sometimes it's energy being repurposed or repopulated or re repositioned over time. That's the cycle of life. That's right. I think it goes back to all of these things come back to one major concept is that we need to have energy to survive, to be able to live to our fullest, to be able to accomplish things. Anything that diminishes us or diminishes our life force or diminishes our ability to live up to our potential mm -hmm. and not be able to unleash that is something that's detrimental to us. So we need to figure those things out. So as doctors, you know, we always want to ask as many questions as we can, get the most uh information we can for we can better understand what's going on with that and all of these different things that we've looked at today have gone through and tried to do that in many different ways to gather as much information as dr bowers used to always say i'm like a two-year-old why 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 is this happening but why is that happening but why did that happen so getting back to the basis of the very beginning of it the first why what went wrong Let's start answering those questions and figuring out how to address these things, not just dealing with chronic infections, but why they were even allowed to become chronic. Why did the body lose the ability to heal itself or to fight that off? What happened? Was it trauma? Was it emotions? Was it some other aspect? Was it environmental? Did we live in an area that was very high in mold? So we had toxicity. And so our bodies were weakened over a period of time. And so we tried to take all the education that we have from our professional education, going back and trying to learn from all of these people in the past, from Hahnemann, Steele, D.D. Palmer, even back to the Egyptians, the Ayurvedic and the Chinese medicine. How do we take all these concepts and this understanding what these brilliant people came up with to understand and that have withstood the test of time? And how do we take those and bring those concepts and understanding into our clinic and try to utilize these as we deal with each patient? And which means that we may come at it from different approaches on different days, trying to figure out what the best thing to do is and to try to get the best results and change people's lives. And I, I, I really believe that, that my passion or my purpose is to go help people live up to their potential. And so having them unleash that and be able to do that on their own, that's up to them. But my job is to give them the ability to do that. And those are the things we love about you, specifically Dr. Tyson, because you will go test the unknown per se, and you'll come up with things that we go, okay, this works. We're not really sure why, but we're not going to question the fact that just because we can't see it, and yet we understand what basic concepts, I, I think for us, what basic concepts we do understand after, you know, two, three, 4,000 years of proven results, we still can't see the unseen per se, but we see the results. We, we've talked about this. Someone smells a flower. What happens? Oh. Yeah. Right. And so we think about from the emotional side, the physiology side, the the physical side, we walk into a store and we, I used to tease Dina, it's malt air. She was deficient in malt air. She had to go, you know, just stand in the mall and just <laughs> the fresh printed beer. price tags. Exactly. Right. The sliding so, of the credit card. All those things have an impact on our life and our health and our perceptibility of, do we feel good? What do I feel? How do I feel it? Right. 
And if we say, I feel bad, I feel weak, I feel terrible, prophetically, we're putting that in our body. And yet we question these things, not in a bad way, or question and go, how can I take what I, I see, but I don't fully understand and help it improve our personal results and our own health and life and those around us and those we have the opportunity to help get healthier. And we're seeing some pretty dynamic results. Oh, it's incredible. That mm-hmm. It just, it blows people's minds if you really knew the, the behind the scenes of stuff that's going on. And yet what do we as people and patients want? We want results. You go, well, that sounds goofy, but if it gets results and it doesn't cause damage, I'm all in. And that's where we see some of the greatest results. Mm-hmm. People have that belief and acceptance in us that we're helping them move, remove blockages, and move in the flow of vitality or life and body. Well, one of the things I thought of, it's, it's funny until we actually did this series and getting into the laws of uh, thermodynamics and all that, that the natural flow of energy is from order to disorder. Right. It's towards death, really. Right. And if you think about it, it takes an outside force to move it in the other direction, i.e. God. Right. And I think when it comes to our clinic, the most important thing we do above anything else is relationships. It's that spiritual connection that I think makes the other stuff we do work. Yeah. That, And I think that's the difference between, just between what we do and energy medicine is more of a warm, a healing, a touch, whereas traditional medicine tends to be cold and lifeless and symptomatic and systems. And it just, that's why I think we get such different results in what we do compared to, to other approaches. I've always asked patients, when, when you have a pain, why do you grab it? Why do you put your hand on it? Mm-hmm. It's letting your brain know that the body knows the connection. Oh, I have an owie. Mm-hmm. And just holding it tends to change it. Doesn't make it go away, but it can reduce the pain. You stub your toe, what's the first thing you do? You grab it. Intuitively, we know that this touch, this energy force, this similarity concept, all these different things is intuitive to our own body. And when we're hurt, we just want to be held, hugged, loved, felt, valued, you know, mm-hmm. all those things. No, it's, I was just going to comment like what he just said on uh, traditional medicine. It's funny how traditional medicine has become traditional medicine mm-hmm. in the last hundred years. But traditionally before that, right. Right. all other medicines were traditional now considered exactly. alternative. So exactly. it's like somebody really uh, wrote that up uh, really good and designed that a script to be played out over the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all of life is energy. That's the interesting thing. And if there's obstruction or blockages or restrictions, how can we remove those things? to get the flow of energy flowing again. And that's what we're all about. Let it flow. And go to the beach, go to the beach. <laughs> because the beach puts the frequency in the earth. I mean, that's what the waves do. So. Well, amen to all that. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us today. And please be sure to join us for our next episode on energy as we talk about senses and intuition and how that ties into energy. Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.